Hey everyone, before we start, there are two things you can do to support Between Us. First, go to patreon.com slash between us and become a supporter. Or go to the iTunes store and buy Between Us, a psychotherapy podcast, original soundtrack. Thanks for listening and thanks for supporting the show. I'm assuming you're still happy that you're not in our original job. Well, yeah. I mean, there are things I miss about it. Yeah? Yeah, there are things like I like. Like Like the clients. I like the clients. Oh, that's true. I mean, I miss specific clients. Yeah. Right. This is Between Us. I'm John Totten. When was he in here? Yesterday while I was in town? Martin, I don't know the doctor. Sure you do. Young, good-looking, outfitting his sailboat down there. He says you've been staring at him from the window all day. Does it give you that much pleasure to humiliate me? Stop it! Now you'll sulk, won't you? Yes, you will. You'll pout and spoil our supper. A beautiful supper. Just smell the bread. I'm so sorry. When you smile. Your doctor friend. He asked us to go sailing tonight. Just to run along the coast. Less than an hour each way. I'll be right there, princess. Right by your side. I know how you feel, but we can't conquer our fears by running away. Do it. For me. Hi, Bethany. How are you? I'm doing okay, John. How are you? I'm good, thanks. What are your thoughts on talking about our old job together? I don't want to get into a toxic negative spiral, but I was thinking that... Like, I was thinking about what to talk about, and that plays into it in terms of, like, essentially, like, helping people through their problems. Mm-hmm. Well, because I was thinking about domestic violence and working with both perpetrators and survivors. Mm-hmm. And our old job of working with people who are on probation and have generally committed some sort of a indictable crime mm-hmm. is a huge part of that. Yeah. Like, it's, it's a lot of the same work on both sides, which is what surprised me. You're saying working with victims and perpetrators. Right. There's some mirror, mirror, mirroring. There's some similarities. There's definitely some differences. Mm-hmm. Some, like, inverse connections. But a lot of, like, the essential, like, how do you help somebody change something in their life is the same. I remember the first time I interviewed for an actual paying community mental health job. It was in a program for people on probation. You'll hear our guest today and I keep referring to it as our previous job together. The woman who interviewed me for the job, who would later become my supervisor for the next year and a half, asked me if there was any kind of criminal I would refuse to work with. And I said, I wouldn't work with child molesters. I seem so young in my memory of that moment. I've worked with plenty of child molesters in that job and since. These days, 
I wouldn't really bat an eye at the prospect of working with a client who might have this problem. It only took me a few months in that job to realize that I was in over my head. Not because of the nature of the crimes committed by my clients, but by the sheer workload and the secondary trauma. At one point, I had 110 criminal offenders on my caseload. When my friend from graduate school, Bethany, asked me if they were hiring, I tried to warn her, but she was eager. I wondered how she would feel bringing her restrained and measured voice to this often rough crew of clients. She ended up lasting twice as long as I did in that job. We've known each other for 10 years. We were in each of our three graduate school counseling practicums together, as well as that first job. And she works in private practice down the street from me in Seattle. She also leads groups for domestic violence offenders and victims. Her name is Bethany Hendrickson. And she sat down with me in my office to discuss domestic violence, gender, and finding humanity in all kinds of messy situations. Let's start, let's go back, can we? Yeah. Okay, so we went to grad school together, and then we had our first job together, mm-hmm. and you lasted longer than I did. <laughs> <laughs> I did, yeah. Um, working with people on probation, mm-hmm. and you made the switch to federal probation as well, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so those people weren't, they weren't on probation with the city or the state, they were, they'd committed a federal crime. And right. But a lot of the people at the state level were, there was a lot of domestic violence. Also, there's a lot of domestic violence everywhere. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the domestic violence crimes weren't the federally prosecuted crimes. So Mm -hmm. in that way, there was some difference. But ever since I started learning about domestic violence, I've been pretty surprised by how pervasive it is and how... Pretty much everybody has had some sort of contact with it, whether it's in their personal life or in somebody that they care about. Right. Or in sort of an unspoken pattern that they feel swept up in without really understanding what it is. Mm -hmm. Were you planning on doing that when you started working there? Like focusing on domestic violence or having that be as big a part of your career as it has turned out to be? No. And I don't know anybody who has like yeah. you remember how they would say at our old job that the the like work picks you um, I don't remember them they would say that, that. <laughs> I might have to, I might have su- suppressed that memory they would say that and I think it's the same with domestic violence like I don't want to work with domestic violence it's totally horrible and it makes you feel awful mm-hmm. like everybody in it feels awful and talking about it feels awful and people like are scared to talk about it because they don't even know what to do. So no, I didn't choose for my life that that's what I would learn about and that those were the people I would work with. But I don't know, I just see it as kind of a root of a lot of issues in our world and a lot of issues, a lot of the issues that my clients face in their life. And when I took, so we went to grad school together and when I took that, the domestic violence class, it made everything make sense for me. And how? Because you go back to trauma mm-hmm. and response 
Mm. And that's the basis of so much for everyone. Right. Whether they're exploding and spewing their trauma out on everybody around them, or whether they're imploding or absorbing the trauma of the people around them. Right. The dynamic of power and control is at the root of, like, it's at the root of racism. Mm -hmm. It's at the root of, like, a lot of the inequality in our country and in our world. People don't want to let go of power, obviously. Like, who would? And we try to control other people. And then, of course, they don't want to be controlled. And it causes a big fight and a lot of pain. And you can see it over and over again, like, in politics, in people's right. families, in their personal relationships, in their work dynamics, and how we view other people. Everybody's just leaking out pain onto each other and... Yeah, and trying to stay in control. Right. They don't have control over their own lives either. No. Right. No, we don't. I mean, control is an illusion. We don't have control. Yeah. But we want it. I think we all want it desperately. Because otherwise we don't know what to do. Like, maybe there's no answer if we don't have control. When you did the interview for that job, did they ask you, are there, like, certain crimes you won't work with? <laughs> I don't know. I think they were trying to figure out if I even wanted the job. <laughs> Which I did, desperately, because I couldn't get one. Like, I was, like, applying everywhere. And, right, right. There was, like, nobody was hiring. They asked me if there were crimes that I wouldn't work with. Mm-hmm. And I was very naive and cocky. And I was like, well, I don't think I'll wor I would work with child molesters. And then you did. That was like most of my cases. <laughs> <laughs> but it was funny because looking back, like, our former supervisor, she just kind of like, she didn't even react to that answer, just kind of kept going with the interview. It wasn't like... <laughs> <laughs> well, I think she was used to people say, saying that. And before I worked that job, I thought that, I thought that I would be scared of all of my clients. Mm-hmm. I yeah, I wasn't raised in that world. Like, mm -hmm. um, I had a very intact and privileged upbringing, or like maybe somewhere deep down, I thought, oh, I'll be scared of these people, or like maybe somebody's committed like some horrible crime because there were people that had done really awful, yeah, awful things. Some of the people that turned out to be my favorites, right? <laughs> 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 and um, I wasn't because once you start talking to people, they're just people right I think there's something to like about everyone mm -hmm. there are definitely I would say a small number a small percentage of people that's very difficult to find that people who don't empathize with others or don't have compassion for others yeah and, I think we... and really struggle on that level of like basic human functioning that's more difficult to right to care because like honestly what you end up finding when you work with people who have committed even like really horrible crimes is that they want to connect with people they want to connect with like they have loved ones that they care about they right. they aren't intentionally going out and causing all of this harm it's often something that they're doing because they're in denial about how much harm it causes or this is just always the way that they've lived life and seen life lived, and they don't know how to do anything different. Hmm. Yeah, I started to think about it as survival. Like, they have really bad s survival strategies. So there was, a, there was an effect that that job had on me of, like, humanizing some people who I had previously 
considered inhuman, mm-hmm. even child molesters. Yeah. I'm assuming now you work more with victims of domestic violence. Well, I actually work with both. So I lead, I lead groups, state-certified perpetrator groups. So those are people who have been identified as the abusive partner right. in their relationship. And I also work with people who have experienced trauma or been abused or are currently in an abusive, mm-hmm. controlling relationship. So you spoke to similarities. What are the similarities? The similarity is essentially the human element of how do we find our choice? Because mm-hmm. when somebody is in an abusive situation and they're being victimized and they have somebody in their life who's trying to control them or who is not emotionally safe, it can be really hard for them to find their choice because often they don't have very much. Like there's always like a, some little place And it might be a place that feels out of reach because you have to give up too much. Like maybe you're trapped. Maybe if you leave somebody, then you lose your job or you lose Mm -hmm. all your money or you lose all of your social connections. But like being able to identify where you are in the cycle of violence and how that's making you feel and then what you want to do about how you feel. There's a camaraderie I feel when I encounter someone who has worked in the probation system. It's like we're war buddies or something. The experience is so unique and so intense, and it develops or solidifies certain opinions in most of us. I don't know one person who came out of that job with much faith in the retributive justice system in which criminals are punished instead of rehabilitated. And this wears on the clinician. Because the lie is that the mental health jobs are supposed to be part of some kind of restorative justice system. But really, you end up feeling like another cog in the system, a babysitter who is expected to do a probation officer's job for them sometimes. So what do you do? Well, you keep practicing therapy with your clients, and when the ethical dilemmas come up, you take them one by one. You're required to report on your clients. You are asked to give the court information that might lead to their probation being revoked. How do you practice reciprocity and mutuality with someone who might be sent to prison based on your session notes? You are constantly walking the tightrope between wanting to work with your clients and help them, and also appeasing the people who pay your clinic and therefore justify your job. For people who aren't initiated, what is the cycle of violence? People tend to think of violence and domestic violence as something that happens randomly. Mm-hmm. Like maybe everything's fine and then suddenly your partner explodes. Right. But what they found is that that's not true, that there's a really specific and identifiable reoccurring cycle of tension building, of explosion, and then contrition. Tension building is a the time when you might, as the survivor or the person being victimized, you might feel like you're walking on eggshells. Things seem fine, they're going along, but for the perpetrator, for the person who is gonna explode, their tension is building, but they're not acknowledging it. Hmm. Then there's an explosion, which tends to be like the incidents that the police are called, or Mm -hmm. there's breaking things, or there's yelling, or there's some sort of 
punishment for something somebody might have done. And then contrition is the abusive person comes back and says, I'm so sorry, like, I don't mean to do that. Please stay, please stay. We'll fix this. We'll get better. There's often, like, lavish gifts or big, grand gestures of well-meaning and things are really good for a little while and then the cycle starts again. The tension begins to build. And it creates this feeling in the victim of, like, well, I got to... Things are good, so I got to... I can't right. say anything. I can't do anything. Yeah, because contr- you love this person, right? right? Like, and and they're coming to you and telling you like they're so sorry and they're going to change, and showing you often, in big and impressive ways or in small ways. Mm-hmm. And it creates this roller coaster effect of when it's good, it's really good. Yeah, when it's good, it's really good, and when it's bad, it's terrible. Mm-hmm. But what most of it is is there's this in between point of tension building. Mm-hmm. And that's where things differ. So working with perpetrators you work with, how do you identify your own tension building and stop it before it gets to a point where you have no control? So like, how do you notice when you have ruminating thoughts? Like when you're thinking over and over again about some little thing that somebody did or how unfair something is or, or you start noticing this annoying thing that somebody does and they keep doing it and every time they do it mm-hmm. it's more annoying yeah. we all have things like that everybody's tension builds you know we're all human we all escalate but for people who are abusive they don't have the skill to recognize I'm starting to escalate or I'm driving home expecting there to be something wrong they don't have the skill to say like okay if I'm driving home expecting there to be something at home that I'm going to blow up about I need to not go home right now right think about what it is that i'm feeling whatever that emotion is that's causing that irritation or anger or escalation and then be able to talk with my partner about that emotion so when you say that i think about gender and how talking about feelings with partners is engendered in our society mm-hmm. that like i would imagine there's a lot of resistance with the men's groups It often takes a while for men to even know what they're feeling because the only thing they really know that they're feeling is angry or frustrated. Those are the things that they can identify and they don't, they've never actually been taught or walked through or shown what it is for men to identify that they're feeling lonely or discouraged or disappointed or helpless. So with the men, a lot of the work is building empathy Mm -hmm. and identifying emotions rather than blaming the people around them for the emotions that they feel or just exploding or not having any sort of framework for what it feels like to be on the other end of the explosion Mm -hmm. or what their partner might be feeling separately from what they feel. For the women, a lot of the work is actually more focused on how do you not betray yourself? Hmm. Women are maybe more free to express anger, which I think is a good thing. Just in like the cultural movements. Yeah, in the cultural movements. But a lot of like cisgendered women are not socialized to do that. And I'll just speak as a collective and include myself in this. Sure. What ends up happening is we betray ourselves over and over by giving in or hmm. not speaking up. So somebody 
does or says something that is invasive or sort of crossing our boundaries, and we don't say anything. And that happens over and over again until we explode. And a lot of the work for women who are perpetrators is how do you identify where you are not being assertive? Because the work is often like teach people how to be assertive rather than aggressive or violent. Mm -hmm. So nobody, we all get to feel our feelings and we all need things. But it's our responsibility to learn how to communicate our needs in a way that is assertive, asking for what we need, being able to talk about it, being able to work and negotiate with people around us, Mm -hmm. rather than aggressive and violent, exploding, punishing people when they don't meet our needs, that sort of thing. Right. I'm thinking about you and that work, because when I think of you, I think of someone who's somewhat timid and like soft-spoken <laughs> like, like has that has doing the work influenced how you think of yourself and how you move through the world i don't know i don't think it is uh, <laughs> i'm not saying that you're like a pushover but your presence is soft sure i think that's actually an advantage yeah so i don't get as much pushback i actually noticed that in our previous job together mm-hmm so I expected to be, like, afraid of people when I went in, or I didn't know what to expect. Yeah. And what I found was there's something about me, <laughs> like, that <laughs> people didn't people didn't push back on me because I am pretty soft. Mm-hmm. I'd say my presence is soft. And that's something that I was taught to do. What do you mean taught to do? I mean how I was raised. Like, I was raised, you're supposed to be kind to everybody. Turns out, being kind to people is effective. I think it took a certain type of person to tolerate that job. And I wasn't that type of person. And Bethany was more so that kind of person. You hear us kind of dance around that issue at the beginning of our talk when she says she doesn't want to get into a toxic negative spiral. I think she's saying that because she knows I'm capable of that. And I really am. Maybe we can call that quality resilience. Maybe we can call it calm. Whatever it was, I didn't have much of it in that job. And it was never the clients. That's one thing I need to make more clear throughout this interview. The clients really were the best part of working in a probation system. It was the system and the administrative forces that wore the clinicians and the clients down. My favorite story of how much I loved those clients comes from my group sessions. While Bethany was working in federal probation, I was leading anger management groups for men on Seattle probation. There was one day when a member of the group had come in convinced that I had snitched on him to his probation officer. I hadn't, if for no other reason that I didn't really know this client very well. But it was a nice day and we were having group out on the lawn. We were sitting cross-legged on the grass. And at one point I noticed he was becoming very angry and mumbling to himself and it grew and it grew and it grew and he started yelling at me. And he got up and he stood over me. And as it seemed like he was about to hurt me, the rest of the group came to my defense and got up and started holding him back. 
He wrestled himself free and walked away. I never saw him again. But as we processed everything that had just happened, the sentiment from the rest of the group was that they were all feeling protective of me and ready to get physical if it meant keeping me safe. I told them that I was glad they didn't have to. The clients that were scary were more likely to try to protect me than be scared to me. Mm. There were people who tried to be scared to me or intimidate me, or maybe they, they felt afraid. What, were they actually scary to you, or was it... You know, we worked with people who were pretty actively psychotic yeah. and unpredictable. Right. And were so afraid of everything mm-hmm. that it's no longer a rational conversation that you can work your way through. Right. Like you're just dealing with somebody's amygdala at that point. And that can be scary. Right. But I wouldn't categorize myself as a non-confrontational person. <laughs> Is that fair? Oh, yeah, no, no, I, I would agree. But there are some pretty definite boundaries that people can't cross. Right. And we all need that. Like, we all need to know where those are. Right. When we're dealing with people. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the groups that you lead, and then you're also doing private practice. Mm-hmm. And how is the balance for you? Way different, right? Yeah, it's a totally different framework. Mm-hmm. So they're not therapy groups. They're, they're psychoeducational and they're behavioral. So it's different. But I think it's important. And honestly, leading the groups has helped me in my private therapy practice. In what way? Well, the material is helpful. It's good. Specifically, there's an exercise that people in groups are required to do. In group, we call it a timeout contract. But it's essentially a self-care plan. But it's, it's just thinking about and writing down and working through, like, what are your unbearable emotions? Everybody has a couple. What are your, like, triggers? Mm-hmm. For a lot of people, it's like talking about sex, money, driving, mm-hmm. family. <laughs> what are your ruminating thoughts? The thoughts that, like, stick in your head. What are your bodily cues? Like, are you getting flush in the face? Are you tapping your fingers? Is your heart racing? Mm-hmm. And then what are you going to do? Hmm. So do you still identify as having any kind of like analytical influence on your work? And if so, does it get hard to locate in all the behavioral interventions? I think I'm still pretty firmly like psycho-relational. Yeah. And that's the standpoint that I approach the groups from as well. And that's just my framework. Mm-hmm. Behavioral interventions are really useful. Sometimes we need them, right? Like, sometimes you just need concrete, like, try this. Sure. But that's not the whole work. That's not all of the work that I do. Mm-hmm. And so the relational part would be looking at what dynamics are playing out in these relationships. Mm-hmm. And, and what purpose do they serve and where do they come from? and What's happening between me and whoever it is I'm working with? Like, what am I noticing? What's my response to them? Mm-hmm. And what's their response to me? And how can we use that to inform mm-hmm. what's happening? Like, if I walk into group and I feel afraid of one of the people who is taking the group, what that tells me is they have something they need to work on, maybe something we need to talk about. Because if I am feeling intimidated of talking to them about something, their partner probably feels intimidated of talking to them about something, too. 
And they might be aware of that or they might not be aware of that, but that would be something to work on, right? I mean, the purpose of the group, according to the state, is to get people to stop like being physically violent to other people. The purpose of the group, according to me, mm-hmm. <laughs> is bigger. <laughs> it includes like helping people have healthy relationships and be safe people mm-hmm. to themselves and to people around them. When I w- hear that, I wonder if they're intimidating you, like I wonder if they're intimidated as well by something in their own life. Mm-hmm. Or they're feeling trying to keep control of something. Or maybe whatever it is that I would bring up would be threatening to them in some way. Like they would have to face themselves or they would have to admit that they have something to work on or they would have to acknowledge an emotion that they don't want to acknowledge. Mm. How important is your own personal work in this process for you? I mean, it's huge. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think all therapists should be in therapy. Me too being able to engage in that work, consulting with other therapists and people that know you well. How has it changed the way you engage in these groups or with your clients? Well, I consider that work to be like self-care, so raising my own awareness of my own needs. Yeah. And if you don't do it, you're just gonna be constantly traumatized and caught up in your own cycle. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, I I don't know that it influences the work as much as it enables the work. It's hard work. Working with offenders also made me get really quiet in conversations out in the real world. When the topic of problematic men came up, I mainly worked with problematic men. It wasn't that I believed that they were innocent, because I didn't. It was that the longer I worked with them, the more I began to see the complexities of their pathologies. Granted, I never worked with rich, entitled men who were unrepentant in their behaviors. The men I worked with were often marginalized by the system, either because of their class, or race, or sexuality, and always because of their mental health. The men I worked with, some of whom had committed monstrous crimes against children and women, were often victims themselves. They had grown up in abusive homes. They had been beaten and sexually abused. They were often men of color who had racism to deal with. It was more than once that my colleagues and I worked with men who had had revolvers placed in their mouths as boys, as a form of intimidation. And so I find myself holding back my words when I hear people talk about these men as if they are worthless or can't change. Because yes, They've done terrible things, and they've caused a lot of pain. But in that clinic, I saw change happen, despite the systemic challenges. It was difficult, but it did happen. Male shame. Uh It seems like it's kind of a driving force one way or the other in our society usually, but like, so Americans, people, but especially men, will go to great lengths to like avoid having to process their own shame. Mm-hmm. And that keeps us trapped. Mm-hmm. It keeps people trapped. But it's really freeing to admit and take responsibility for the things that you've done because that's the only way that you can move into a life that you want. Otherwise, if you're just constantly avoiding it, you'll stay trapped. They can do the work of why did I do that and how do I, how do I choose something different? And that's the freedom. The admission is important to me, but also just the, the like the feeling of sh- shame. 
I think where, where I'm th- where I'm going with it is that like I used to think shame was kind of like the villain of my therapeutic practice, and maybe something about this new era has changed the way I thought about it. Now I really like it. Well, when, it shows you what you need. What do you mean by need? Maybe the way I think of it is people need to know that they are valuable and that they are worthwhile. Mm-hmm. And our greatest fear is that we're not. Yeah. That's what the shame tells you, that you want to be someone valuable, but you aren't because you, whatever it is about you, you did something, you are something, you mm-hmm. think something, and that means that you aren't worthy or valuable or worthwhile. Right. And it's a vulnerable place. And maybe right. that's what you're talking about is like shame, well, tries to hide our vulnerabilities. Right. But those vulnerabilities are where we can experience the most growth and the most healing. In the end, it can't be my opinion that sways people. As men, I think we have to realize that it's not our time. That's why I'm grateful for women like Bethany, who can simultaneously believe survivors and treat their trauma, and also believe in change for both victims and perpetrators. We are post Me Too now. Mm-hmm. What have you noticed therapeutically since this new cultural movement of calling abusers out and standing against misuse of power? Well, I feel really grateful for the conversations that are being had. Mm-hmm. I think therapeutically what I've noticed is that it's really traumatizing to survivors. The movement. The the movement. And I don't mean that they don't want it to happen. Right. So the Me Too movement is essentially people sharing their trauma stories. Right. And that's triggering for a lot of people who have trauma stories. And it's also triggering for people who don't. I mean, it's upsetting. We don't want to think about those things. And so that aspect of it is difficult. And yet it's facilitating all of these conversations that are really helpful and need to be had. And I think more people understand more of the issue. You know, we don't have a perfect cultural understanding of abuse or power and control or sexual assault or whatever it is. But we have more people who know more and who can talk about these things with people around them. Mm-hmm. And ideally, what that leads us to is a place that's empowering to survivors and creating a world that people can speak out when something is happening and know that they'll be supported rather than what happens now, which is people speak out and they don't know if people will support them. And often there's a huge backlash and or Mm. big fight. Maybe some people support them and some people don't. Or they speak out and nobody believes them. Or people believe them and they don't do anything. Right. I think there's a lot of hope and encouragement in the people I work with, specifically in private practice who tend to identify as survivors. Um, But every time a story breaks, it's hard. So like kind of a classic case study that I've experienced in this realm is working with like a woman who is in a really what seems like an abusive situation. I guess what I'm thinking is that, like, saying to that client, you are in an abusive situation and you need to get out is probably one of the worst things that I've ever done Mm -hmm. in terms of it actually being effective. 
Um, I mean, like, they didn't respond. Or, or they, they left therapy, mm, right? Mm-hmm. Because it, that was overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And it, it was being stuck between two forces pulling them in two different directions. Right. Like what's happening in that moment is that I can't tolerate mm-hmm. the cognitive dissonance of staying with someone who's abusive because I don't understand it. Right. Or that you can't tolerate how worried you are about the client. Sure. Because that can happen too. Like maybe you can have a legitimate concern for their life or their safety. Mm-hmm. Those situations are really hard. What I try to remember is there are always reasons why people stay. Mm-hmm. And you hear people say that, you know, like, oh, there's reasons why people stay in abusive situations. But it's hard to actually tolerate that spot of sitting with somebody in that, exploring the reasons that they're staying. How I think about that work if somebody is in an abusive situation and maybe they don't realize it or they do and they aren't ready to leave or they are terrified of leaving or making any sort of change is you always bring it back to what they're feeling and what they want. And I would say to pair with that what I want for them. My hope for everybody is that they're in a relationships in which they feel valued, they feel safe, and they know that their partner is going to be respectful of them. Mm-hmm. And I say that to people over and over. It's a bar that's hard for some people to meet. Like, they give up a lot when they leave somebody. They give up the part of themselves that thought they could make it work and the part of themselves that they believe to be strong enough to stay and fix it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It would be fantastic if we had the power and the ability to fix everything that didn't work in our life. And a lot of people that stay in those situations are really highly functioning people. They're people that are used to fixing. Well, they are caretakers as well. Yeah, caretakers, people who absorb, people who are used to being able to hold a lot. And admitting that they can't hold it all is often like somewhat of a crisis of identity. Well, that's not to mention the concrete realities, too, of like what it concretely takes to leave someone. Yeah. Money, time, availability, flexibility, housing, housing, friends. Maybe all your friends are actually connected to your partner. Maybe they take your partner's side and they don't take yours. You know, like that's a huge barrier. Uh It's even a barrier for people. Like I think of people who are in this very top tier, wealthy subgroup of our society. A lot of those people can be very trapped. Because they're, they're in this world that requires millions and billions of dollars. And if they leave, they have nothing. Right. They lose their friends. They lose their life. Not to mention when you add to that the cycle of violence that you're talking about that creates this emotional whiplash of sometimes it's really, really good. And it kind of creates this high. Right. You don't want to give up on the good times. Where I come back to for you as a therapist, like what this requires and something that I'm not good at is an extreme patience and an extreme guarding of like your words and how you disclose your own feelings and thoughts about their relationship. Yeah. I wouldn't say guarding, but I would say What's a better way of saying it? I think extreme patience is right on and constantly going back to somebody's value and what you want for them. Right. Focus. Focus, yeah. 
Because if you're focus, I mean, if you're focusing on everything that's wrong in their life, mm-hmm. that's really overwhelming, right? Like if they're mm-hmm. telling you they want, they want a healthy relationship or they want to feel loved, or, you just stick with that. They're telling you what they want. That's what's going to make a change. Mm-hmm. That's what changes things for people. Mm. A lot of people leave abusive situations because of their kids. And that goes back to what they want. They want their kids to be in a healthy environment. Mm. And that want eventually outweighs these other things that they want, like to stay in the relationship or to have a cohesive family or to not have to move or give up on their job or whatever it is. What does restorative justice look like for domestic violence abusers? I'm assuming that, like me, you don't have much faith in retributive justice for right. re- rehabilitating Correct. people. Yeah, I don't. I don't think it works. So when you look at everything from like your clients who are perpetrators to the Me Too abusers, what do you hope for for these mostly men who have done bad things? Well, you always have to start from a, a victim-survivor safety standpoint. And that's a framework that I think it's appropriate to look at anything through. What makes people safe? Mm -hmm. And secondly, what do those victims, survivors want? Mm -hmm. And primarily what they want is for their partner, ex-partner, family member, whoever it is, to change. That's what they want. And so I think that's, that's what restorative justice looks like. It looks like doing your own work and taking responsibility for your own self so that other people don't have to take responsibility for you. They want their perpetrator to stop being abusive. So that's <laughs> that's what they should do. And sometimes proof of change happens differently in different situations. And it takes a while to restore trust and to earn trust. Mm-hmm. I think that's something that is important for people to keep in mind and learn that if you've done a lot of harm to people in your life, you should not expect them to trust you right away. Hmm. And it is wise for them not to trust you right away. It is possible to restore those relationships, but it takes time and it's not something you can force. Thanks, Bethany. Thanks, John. This has been Between Us. Our thanks to Bethany Hendrickson. Between Us is produced by myself, John Totten, and Mason Neely. Mason also composes our music, with additional editing by Chris Keene. Support us on patreon.com slash betweenus, or buy our soundtrack in the iTunes store. Find us on social media, or on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, and let us know how you feel about the show. Subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you find podcasts. And until next time, take care.